Hey there, this is Larry, and I'm here with Armin. You're about to listen to a great episode. But before you do, we want to let you know that we're now podcasting over at the Bold Idea Podcast. That's right, and we're not adding any new episodes to Reinventure Me, but we think you're really going to like what we're doing on the Bold Idea Podcast. We're interviewing some great guests and packing ideas and inspiration to help you put your faith to work to bring your idea to life. So when you're done with this episode, go check it out at boldideapodcast.com. Episode 107 of the Reinventure Me Podcast. Do you have a book in you? If so, then this podcast is just for you because we're going to talk to mega author and co-creator of Left Behind, Jerry B. Jenkins. Find your next great beginning. Welcome to the Reinventure Me Podcast with your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the... <laughs> okay, Armin. <laughs> Let me get this this intro out, all right? Welcome to the Reinventure Me podcast. I'm your co-host, Larry Gates, along with... Armin Asadi. Oh, I wish people could see... (laughs) Larry's literally sitting here doing some kind of jig dance. I'm not sure what it is, but I think he's excited about this. It's the Reinventure Me Macarena. (laughs) I don't know. Well, this is the this oh, is the podcast for what's next in life, and I think it's a safe bet to say that career in dance is not what's next for me. But we want to help you explore new ways to reinvent your life, your opportunities, and the ventures you were made to pursue. This is episode one hundred and seven, which means what? I mean, it's uh, going to be at reinventure.me backslash one hundred and seven. Perfect thing. Now we've got a lot of stuff happening today. A uh, great show. Yes, this is uh, you in a candy shop. Obviously, it, it, me in a candy shop. <laughs> Jerry B. Jenkins, man, I, I think you're a fan. Yeah, I think you're definitely a fan of this man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I've been waiting for a long time, really looking forward to this interview. Yeah. with Jerry B. Jenkins. Absolutely. So have I. And just so so honored to have a man I've admired for some time. I've known for quite a while. I've attended his conferences. I've heard him speak. I've I've gone to his workshops, and I've read his books, but I have to admit, I haven't read all of his books. I don't think that's possible. <laughs> yeah, there's that's 187 right. of them. That's all. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> and I looked at the Pew Research stats, and the average American last year read 12 books, which I thought was kind of high. Mm. So you just do the math on that. If you were to read at the pace of the average American, it would take you 15 and a half years oh, to read all. all. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> read all the books that Jerry Jenkins has written. 187 books, 21 New York Times bestsellers, including Left Behind, which was 16 novels that he co-wrote with uh, Tim LaHaye that turned into four films, a video game, and a sequel to the video game. I honestly didn't know about the video game until this process. (laughs) I wonder if he's played it. We're going to have to ask him. Uh, (laughs) Selling more than 70 million copies in total, and he's written fiction, nonfiction for children and adults, and biographies of... Hank Aaron, Bill Gaither, Oral Hershiser, Louis Palau, Walter Payton, Nolan Ryan, and I, what I think has got to be a, a win of a lifetime is to right. assist Dr. Billy Graham in his autobiography. That's insane. And his writings have appeared everywhere. He's a former editor of Moody Monthly, and I think I could go on and on and on. He's, <laughs> you know, he's received five honorary degrees. You know? oh doctorates, right. <laughs> honorary doctorates, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I don't want to spend all the time in the setup to Jerry Jenkins. And welcome to the program, Jerry. Thank you so much for being a part of the, the podcast. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's so good to see you. And I've really benefited from all the work that you've done. And I'm part of your writing program right now. I was part of your Christian Writing Guild a number of years ago. <laughs> that goes back a ways. And just really profited myself. And, and I've read your books. You know, one thing I don't think I mentioned to you was that our little family had a moment of, you know, our 10 minutes in fame when our picture of our family appeared in the local paper here, the Star Tribune. They came and they took a picture of our family sitting next to 16 of the Left Behind series books stacked on our coffee room table. <laughs> I didn't know that. As we were one of those Christians who really got into this stuff, and, and we really enjoyed it, and we were in the Star Trip for that's that. You know, that's, our, that's our moment of, <laughs> moment of glory, but welcome to the program. Did you have candles lit around them? And them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, did, we did all kinds of the stuff. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll have to email that to you later, Jerry. You'll get a kick out of it anyway. I don't know what the stat is, Jerry, but it, it seems like everybody that I talk to feels they have a book within them. You know, I was just talking to my mother-in-law last night because my in-laws are visiting, and, and she said, well, I, you know, when I write my book, and, you know, she's 84. <laughs> so it just seems like everybody has a book within them. And what do you, what do you say to people who are, are, are starting out that way? with that book idea. Yeah, I do find that, that that's, uh, that's true. It seems like um, you know, eight or nine out of 10 people believe they have a book in them. And for a person who's a writing teacher, that's good news because it seems like my market, if you will, will never end. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the sort of uh, naive thing about it is that a lot of people want to start their career with a book. And I always have to, to caution them that you know, starting your writing career with a book is sort of like starting your education as a five-year-old in graduate school. Oh, yeah. You really need to start in kindergarten and, and learn and, and arrive in mm-hmm. graduate school just the way you need to arrive at a book. Yeah. And uh, I have people all the time tell me that, you know, they just want to get together with me and talk because they want to uh, do some writing in their spare time. And uh, I think, well, that's interesting because I'd like to do what you do in your spare time. You know, my <laughs> spare time. I, I had a friend who's a counseling psychologist get together with me and say he, he wanted to write books in his spare time. And I said, well, that's interesting because I'd like to be a counselor in my spare time, you know, and he said, I didn't realize you were trained for that. And I thought, well, it's interesting. You have to be, and I have to be trained to do what you do, but apparently you don't have to be trained to do what I do. Right. right. That's wow. one of the things I try to teach people is that this is not a hobby. It's not a diversion. I'm sure, people can be taught to, to write, you know, little things, ditties, um, maybe a little poetry, but even true poets will tell you you have to be taught to do that right as well. So mm-hmm. uh, writing is a serious business and, and takes a lot of years of training and, and work to do it right. I know it does because you've demonstrated that with 21 New York Times bestsellers. Now, I was interested in one of your parts of your biography. Just talk about how long did it take you to get to your first New York Times bestseller? Because to me, that's a statement of perseverance right there. Yeah, and sometimes that's a little misleading, although I, I like to, to clarify that for people. I was anything but an overnight success. Now, that doesn't mean I was a failure because I wrote dozens and dozens of books before I had my first hit. But my first New York Times bestseller was Oral Hershiser's As Told to Autobiography, Out of the Blue, which came out in 1989. Now, my first book appeared in 1974. So we're talking 15 years into my writing career. And the Hershiser book, I believe, was my 75th book. Now, I had bestsellers before that. They weren't New York Times bestsellers. They were you know, in the inspirational market. And I had books that, that had done, you know, in the 100,000 range, which is pretty good. I would have been able to probably pay off our house and put our three sons through college, eventually do that. I certainly was on easy street. That's the thing that people believe about authors. They're either multimillionaires or they're 
broke. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I or they're been, mentally insane, right? <laughs> well, that, that's always true. <laughs> but I, I would have been on the upper level of, of those because a lot of writers do suffer and they have to, they have to take, you know, second jobs and that type of thing. Right. Uh, I did not go full-time freelance until I'd written 90 books. I took some good counsel there. Somebody said, make sure you're making three or four times your salary before you think you can go full-time freelance because all the expenses now are going to be yours. If you want to have a pension or insurance or any benefits, or if you want to pay for your own travel and equipment and all that stuff, that's going to be on you. And that was really good counsel. And it was after that, then Left Behind was my 125th book. Now, that was obviously a mega bestseller, and that did put me in the top one-tenth of one percent of writers that, you know, sort of strike it rich. But again, that wasn't the reason I wrote that book. Right, right. How do you write uh, a mega bestseller? Well, you don't. You don't sit down to do that. You write from your passions and what you care about. Mm. I don't have any control over how something sells, how it will be received. The only thing I have control over is how much of myself I put into it and how disciplined I am. And so all I can do is the best I can do. And the market takes care of the rest. You leave everything else to God and to to the marketplace. You know, that's a great word there, Jerry, because one of the things that I see a lot, and I'd love to hear you comment on this, I see a lot about what seems to be for new writers, this expectation that if you follow this program or you follow this advice from these luminaries, that they can get you on the New York Times bestseller list. And that seems like it's almost the mark of whether even a first book is successful or not. And how many people I see out there that promote that their first book was a New York Times bestseller or appears somewhere on some bestseller list? But talk about that for a second. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm really ferocious about in my promotion because I do teach writing and I have my Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild. And if people look carefully, they'll notice that I'm never overselling. I really believe in this adage that you underpromise and overdeliver. And the only thing I promise people is that wherever you are as a writer, if you let me teach you the basics and teach you what I know, you'll be a better writer next month and the month after that than you are now. Mm-hmm. If that means that you're mediocre or you know very little, you'll know more in a few months and you'll be better at it. If you're pretty good, I think you can become very good. If you really have a gift, you might really do well in a, in a half a year or more by, by taking my training. And if you have a lot of time and, and are able to put a lot of effort into it. But you will not see any headlines that say you, too, can be a New York Times bestseller. You, too, can make a huge, wonderful living at this. It's just that you can improve and you can get better. And then it's on, it's on the person. How much will they, will they give themselves to it? And also, I'm teaching people to write from their passions, write from their heart, and not be sitting there thinking about what gimmick or what secret or what magic key can I find that will turn me into a best-selling author. Right. If that's your goal... For one thing, if you do happen to hit like that, you're going to find that a very empty life because that's not, you know, your goal shouldn't be that extrinsic where it's about you. Yeah. Uh, people who, who succeed and, and really have incredible careers like that in, in almost any profession, singers or actors or writers, any kind of artist, the ones who make it in a huge way will always tell you that's not why they got into it. They got into it because it, they, they had a message. They had something they really wanted to say and communicate. And they're others oriented. And all this came as sort of icing on the cake. Yeah. Is that true for you as well uh, in your early days when you wrote? It is true. Now, I can't deny that there is something about it where you say, well, I want to be a writer. There's a certain glamour to it. And I want to be known as a writer. And, and you dream, wouldn't it be nice to, 
to make the New York Times bestseller list or have your picture on the cover of a national magazine or whatever, get to know famous people. But if that becomes your number one goal, you realize it's self-motivated and self-oriented. Yeah. And, and there's an emptiness to it. And then when you don't make it, when you're 70 books into your career and nobody knows your name, you realize that this better not be your whole, your whole goal or you're going to be <laughs> your whole life. Yeah. So the more you give yourself to, to discipline and, and doing it right and just letting the chips fall and say, if, if it's supposed to happen, it'll happen. All of a sudden, now you've worked for several years and you've put out several books a year and you try to make each one better than the last and realize that, you know, my mother was a great example to me. She died six years ago, but into her 80s, she was not only a piano teacher, she was also a piano student that whole time. Wow. And I thought wow. if she never felt like she arrived, but was always learning, that should say the same for me. So not only do I write and teach I'm also a writing student. I'm reading everything I can can read about writing. I attend writing workshops myself, not to teach sometimes, but to be a student. Do you have a coach, I, <laughs> a writing coach? Yeah, I don't. I don't uh, publicize. Who that is, but I, well, I've sat under people that people would consider my my own contemporaries and colleagues. I've uh-huh. sat into uh, writers' conferences where I've, I've been taught by Doc Hensley, who has the oh, professional yeah. writing. Uh, and we've had him on this program. Sure, at Taylor University, James Scott Bell, another writer, uh, Saul Stein of Stein and Day. He's pretty much retired now, but in the day, he taught some fantastic writers' workshops on weekends. But I just try to always be a student, never feel I've arrived. I had a student just the other day write in on our forum at Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild and said, I have a fear. It's hard to get started because I fear my own inadequacies. And I said, look, you know my pedigree. You know the number of books I've written and, and how many I've sold. I still have that same fear and I always want to cultivate it. It's not a bad motivator. Mm. If I sat at the keyboard every day saying, hey, I've done this. I've done 180 plus books and sold 70 million. I could mail this in and <laughs> nobody publish it. Yeah. That would be a really bad uh, motivation. Yeah. And I might cut corners and I might get sloppy and I might have an editor go, wow, who told this guy he could do this? I thought he was a, a good writer and this is shoddy work. I don't ever want that response to come. So I say, I maintain that fear of inadequacy and that, and that little bit of low self-esteem. And I, I don't want to, to be, you know, be paranoid Right. I look on the shelf and say, you have done this before. You can do it. There are days when I need that kind of encouragement. But I say, fear is not a bad motivator. Hmm. You know, let's, let's take whatever you need to keep you from shortcutting the process and short selling yourself. I want to give as much to a manager today as I did 30 years ago. Yeah, I love that. You know, in our, one of our earlier programs, we talked about one of the problems of becoming an expert is that you develop a sense of complacency, and so you start to coast. I love the fact that you keep pushing yourself. You know, Eugene Peterson wrote a book, a man I think you know pretty well. He wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And as you've been talking, that seems like that's a pretty apt description of your life, Jerry. I'm wondering, was there a time... When you thought about just throwing in the towel, things got so hard for you, you just said, <laughs> forget it. And you walked away and you, you know, obviously you came back, but, but talk about it. Did you ever have a time like that? Not, not from the profession, but, uh, that comes with just about every book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, and, and this I think is encouraging to most writing students because they assume somebody with a production, um, history like mine never has a bout of procrastination or discouragement, or what they call writer's block. I'll, I'll talk about the fact that I, I think writer's block is a myth, but I'm a, a world-class procrastinator. 
<laughs> and people find this really encouraging. I say, find that encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just laugh. Thank God. How can you, how There's hope. Procrastinator and and finish so many projects. Well, I'm also a world class finisher, but it takes me so long to get started. Right. And there were years when that bothered me because I'd I'd make my schedule and I'd pen in you know when I have to hit the deadline and everything, and then I'd spend so long getting started. And I make a joke of it now because I, I figured out how to, to manage it. But one of the things I have to do before I can start is I have to have all my pencils sharpened to a T, you know. <laughs> and I think, I don't write with pencils. I, <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. Do you write with pencil? Who does? I mean, I, I, I haven't written with a pencil since sixth grade. But, <laughs> reason, but it seems important at the time, right? I can't. I, in my desk, I'm, I'm not a neat nick unless it's deadline time. Then my desk <laughs> right. Right, pristine. And it's like, what's the point of that? You know, <laughs> I have to read everything on every pill bottle in the house and read the cereal boxes and all that stuff. It's like, what is what? It, all it is is putting off the inevitable. It's hard to get started. But there were years when I would lose sleep over this. I'd say, I got to get started, or I'll never get this thing done. And then now I've got lack of sleep, which makes it harder. And then now that with the computer, you know, you go to get started, and you're you got to clean up the email first, right? And then right. there's that little thing that says, you know, the ten. Uh, actors who married ugly, normal-looking women. Well, you got to check that out. I mean, how can you write a chapter until you know who those are? And they go, if you like that, look at these 15 ugliest creatures that ever came out of the bottom of the sea. Well, that's an interesting. Maybe there's a story there. Now, now it's noon and you haven't done anything. So anyway, I finally figured out that when I do get to my writing, it seems to flow and my stories come. I'm, I'm sort of an intuitive plotter and... I, I realized, and one thing, because I was a publisher at one point, when I was in charge of Moody Press, I realized that only one writer in a hundred literally keep their deadlines. And I thought, when, when you've got about a one in a thousand chance to publish a book as it is, you can separate yourself from a hundred of those. Just show up. Yep. Show up and make your deadline. Yeah. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my deadlines. So one of the things I do is I, re- I realize that while I'm procrastinating, my subconscious is working on the, on the story. Because mm-hmm. things come out in the writing. I'll be writing along and I'll say, why, why am I making a point about this guy wearing a red shirt or that he's left-handed? I don't even know why. Mm-hmm. But 200 pages later, it comes out why. Mm-hmm. And I realize that's all happening while I'm procrastinating. So I'm going to schedule procrastination. Oh, I good. I'm going to procrastinate, so I might as well just put it on the schedule. And so I get away to my writing cave and I've got my calendar and I put down the number of pages I need to write per day to make the deadline. The deadline's not going to change. Mm-hmm. I may procrastinate early, but now I've got, I'm going to write 10 pages a day. Now, six days later, I haven't written any pages. So now I've got to write 12 pages a day. And I keep changing that until I get to the point where I say, you know, I can't write more pages a day than this. <laughs> this is, <laughs> the last three days and write 400 pages every day. So, yeah. so finally I get there. Yeah. So that helps. And then the writer's block thing, people I say, well, I'm just, I've got writer's block. And I say, wait a second. Writers are the only people who give themselves this. Yes. If you any other profession, just try it one time. Call your boss in the morning and say, you know, I'd love to come in, but I've got workers block. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You laughed off the face of the earth or they'd say, why don't you just not come in ever again? Yeah. 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 We'll we'll show you what workers block looks like. So so let's just call it what it is. It's laziness. We don't want to do it. So get your seat seat in the chair before the keyboard and do something. If you don't feel like writing, do research, do something and yeah. stay at it. Yeah. 
Now, no doubt in all the success that you've had, you've had some criticism and some detractors. You know, when you face that criticism, were there any that particularly stung and how did you deal with that? Because I, th- I think that's one of the fears that writers have is they're going to put their work out there and they're going to be criticized for it, right? That's when we start to pronounce artist, artiste. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We're so and, and it is We're true. sensitive people. <laughs> yeah, that, that's part of it for some reason. And so many old pros say, you know, don't take it personally. It's not you that's being criticized. It's your writing. And yet on the <laughs> other side, you're putting your whole life on that page. That's right. And, and you send it out and you go, what do you mean it's not me? It is me. It's everything about me. Mm-hmm. We're all introverts. Mm-hmm. And so we dare to put our whole life, we bleed on that page and send it out and somebody goes, yeah, well, it's, here's the problem with it. And you go, oh, you're dying, you know? <laughs> so I used to read reviews and, I, and I'd see that people misunderstood me and you want to defend yourself to everyone. Then somebody writes, the worst ones are the ones who write and question your motive. And the more successful a book is, the more they question your motive. Oh, sure. So sure. when Left Behind first came out, here it's this kind of right-wing reactionary pastor, former minister, Tim LaHaye, and this sort of half-known Christian writer, Jerry Jenkins, book comes out, doesn't get much, you know, the first half year, nobody thinks much about it. Then it kind of hits and it starts to grow and becomes this phenomenon. And then everybody's got an opinion. It's the wrong theology. It's the wrong this. It's not that well written. It's blah, blah, blah. And then they start saying, yeah, they're only doing this for the money. Well, there wasn't any money. In the first <laughs> right. thing, the only reason there's money is because everybody seems to like it. Right. And I remember starting to, to defend and say, wait a minute. I've never been about money. I've never had any money. How could I be about money? Right. I didn't even know money was this much fun, you know? <laughs> and so I would start to answer and, and say, no, no, it's not about money. We really believe this stuff. You don't have to agree with us, but we're just trying to make sure nobody's left behind. Well, then you realize you're never convincing anybody. They right. don't want to be convinced. They want to argue with you. And it was right around that time that I assisted Dr. Graham with his memoirs. And I talked to him about that. What an incredible lesson from a incredible person. He said, let me tell you how I respond to critics. He said, I did the same thing you did when I was young. He said, I couldn't believe people would criticize me for sharing the gospel. He said, that's all I was doing, preaching salvation. And I'm going to criticize being called the Antichrist, being called an enemy of God, being told I'm leading people to hell. He said, I would try to defend myself to everybody and nobody wants to be argued with. They just, you know, they want to get you. Hmm. And he said, I finally, here's my response. He said, I write back to them and I say, thank you for caring enough about me to be so forthright in your letter. I ask that you continue to pray for me as I continue to try to serve the Lord. That's it. No defense, no specifics, no answering anything. And so I started doing that. It drove people crazy. Oh, yeah, I love it. They say, well, didn't you hear what I said? I said, you're, you know, you're horrible, you're wrong, you're, you know. Mm. And I would get really get my back up when they would criticize Dr. LaHaye for being about money because I knew the man for whatever you want to criticize about his politics or his forthrightness or whatever. He's a soul winner. He cares. That's why he wrote the thing. And so I would defend him, but I just quit defending myself. And it really has made it a lot easier. Mm. And so many times the, the, the scripture has proven true that a soft answer turns away wrath. Often people will write and say, you know, I don't know what kind of mood I was in the day I wrote you and why I said to do that, but your answer was so soft that I just, I'm just sorry I said that. It's it's wonderful how that works. Well, that's one way of returning a blessing instead of a curse back to them, which is great. I love that. You mentioned that you weren't expecting 
left behind to become the success that it was. And that really catapulted you into another echelon, really, in, in terms of your whole life. You, you probably had some visions about what that might be be like to be that wildly successful. I imagine you probably had some preconceptions of that. I'm just wondering what's, what was the thing that surprised you most about being catapulted into that level of success? You know, even, even in your wildest dreams, you don't dream that big. When, mm -hmm. when, when I dreamed of a potential bestseller someday, I was thinking that I might someday have a book that would sell a couple hundred thousand copies, maybe 300,000 copies. Mm -hmm. At the height of its popularity, the first title alone was selling 275,000 copies a month. Wow. Oh, it God. Just, it's just off the charts. I yeah. mean, you, you think of Harry Potter, you think of you know, things in that level. Obviously, that's, that's even beyond left behind, but it, it's, it's, it was so bizarre. I can remember when the first three titles totaled a million copies. Tyndale sent us a framed thing with the first three covers on it. And I thought, I'm going to give this a prominent place in my office because three books totaling a million sales, that's just, that'll never happen again. And, and what, what an accomplishment for a lifetime. And I, I remember feeling pretty good about myself thinking, wow, I really, I really did something special here. And then within just maybe a half year, that was nothing. That was like three, three books totaling a million now we're talking millions of sales every year. And, and instead of feeling good about yourself, you've, you start saying, I'm sorry that I took any credit for this. It's so far beyond anything human should take any credit for. It's so clearly a God thing. It was like humbling. Hmm. And you just sort of hang on for dear life. So, yeah, it's, it, it was overwhelming. And, you know, it's hard to believe the first title came out 20 years ago. And it's still that that series still sells over two hundred thousand units a, a year. The whole the sixteen books, it's bizarre. Hmm. Listening to you even describe that success, I think especially me as a millennial and other people my age, I think one of the things that kind of stops us dead in our tracks as we think about getting into book writing is we always compare ourselves to the successes of others, and we think there's no way that we could ever be successful like them. Our writing style sucks. We don't know what we're doing, blah, 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 right? It's all this negative self-talk. Um, when you first started writing, did you did you kind of see yourself having those same processes of comparing yourself to people who are already successful and that being a prevention of you actually writing? Yes and no. I, I didn't even think to dream that big. I, I can remember when my first standalone novel came out, it was probably uh, among, among my first 20 books or so. I had a big standalone novel that sold to a, a major New York publishing house. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be something if this caught on? Because you have people that are known as Catholic writers, and people that are known as Southern writers, and people that are known as you know legal writers, like you got John Grisham and you got Andrew Greeley and those type of people. And I thought, is it possible that I could become known as an evangelical novelist that would stand out and, and maybe Time Magazine would do a story on Jerry Jenkins breaks out as an evangelical novelist? Well, it didn't make a ripple. Nobody knew anything about it. And I thought, well, that was a fun little fantasy. <laughs> I, I have a lot of those. <laughs> I was at a, a book convention one time, a Christian book convention, and they were doing a funny thing where they, they would take your picture and, and make it look like it's on the cover of Christianity Today magazine okay. or Time Magazine even. Right, And so I had one of those done and it's like, 
a young novelist breaks out and this and that. <laughs> well, then when Left Behind came out, a couple of years after it you know, started to really go, LaHaye and I were actually on the cover of Newsweek magazine. And when I saw that on the newsstand in New York City, it was like a surreal experience. It was like, this was something I dreamed about years ago and sort of never really thought it would happen. And here it is. Mm-hmm. And, and now what do you do? You've got this kind of weird responsibility that you didn't ask for, you, dr- you dreamed about, but now what do you do, now what do, you do with it? <laughs> it wasn't that I, I stopped because I thought other people are so much better. I just thought my calling is to, you know, is that I have a message. I'm not necessarily called to be a writer. I'm called to spread the word, and this is my vehicle to answer that call. Mm. So I'm going to be obedient to that call. Success was never the point. Obedience was the point. Right. Mm, right. And so had my books never, I never had a book that sold over 100,000 copies. I still would have been a success by answering the call and being obedient. Right on. The fact that, the fact that I've had all these sales and bestsellers and stuff is just icing on the cake. Well, yeah, that's great. Just one more, because this is a really selfish question. Well, maybe not, because there's a lot more people that are going to be listening that are going to be first-time writers and not second-time writers. What advice would you give to someone like me that's pondering this idea that seems really stupid to write a book? Where's a starting point? How do we set goals? Or wherever you would advise us to start on this. I would hearken back to the, uh, the whole idea of not starting with a book. If you want to be a writer, uh, start with a blog, start with a small publication, start with a newspaper, do magazine work, learn the craft, get the quarter million cliches out of your system. <laughs> Once upon I, a time. <laughs> I did do that. And learn to be edited, learn that it's collegial. Every published piece of writing is a duet, not a solo. Mm. Learn that back and forth. And then as you become sort of an expert in something, whether it's nonfiction or you just have a great fiction idea, then start learning the business and making the runs, going to writers' conferences, meeting editors and agents. And then, then it's time to, to get involved in a writer's group and try your hand at, the, at that book you want to take a shot at. Well, Jerry, you've obviously been successful over a long career. I mean, nobody would ever dispute that. But I'm wondering, as you look back and you just take an assessment of the path that you were on, is there anything that you would have done differently that would have maybe made it less stressful or would have accelerated your learning? Uh, Those things that are important to you, not necessarily your success, but the things that, that you would have maybe done differently if you had a chance to do over again. I'm not sure I would do anything differently. I think I have to say I made a decision early that turned out to be a really good one. And, and I wish I could take credit for it. I think God kind of just hit me on the head with a brick. And, and <laughs> uh, That's the only way you can get my attention. <laughs> it wasn't so much brilliance as, as much as I would have been really stupid to ignore the, the message. But when I was a young editor, Diana and I had been married for three or four years, no kids yet. I was editing a, a Sunday school paper and I was doing interviews on four or five different articles at the same time. And they were all on disparate subjects, but the people I was interviewing were, were all middle-aged men about twice my age at the time. And even though these were on totally separate subjects, I asked the, all these guys the same question at one point in, in the interview. I said, what regrets do you have at this stage of your life? Mm-hmm. And every one of them said the same thing. They said, I, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. I remember after like the fourth or fifth of those I came home and I said to Diana, 
you know, somebody's trying to tell me something. It doesn't take me too long to catch up. <laughs> I said, if I get to be that age and have that same regret, I'm going to be without excuse. Yeah. And so we, we made a rule, even before our first son was born, that when kids came along, I would not do any work from the office if I was still working in Chicago and everything. And I wouldn't do any writing from the time the kids, from the time I got home from work until the time the kids went to bed. And of course, sometimes we put them to bed at four thirty. But you know, <laughs> um, but I maintained that policy. Our kids came along in seventy-five. So our oldest is forty years old now. We have three mm-hmm. sons, three grown sons, and that allowed me to to write without guilt. It allowed me to be close to all three sons. I was able to lead all three of them to Christ personally. Put three of them to bed every night. We did our Bible verses and singing and all that stuff. And. It's not a guarantee your kids won't become prodigals or rebels. It happens in our case that they did not. I know other people have done similar things and still had trouble with the kids, but I think that is one of the keys to my production because I'm a morning person. And during those days when I was working down, I lived in the Chicago suburb and had to drive downtown. I had to get up early, drive to Chicago, work all day, come back in time for dinner. And then I was not able to write until about nine at night when the kids were in bed and I'd spend some time with Diana. So even though I'm a morning person, I was only writing from nine to midnight and I was more productive then than almost any other time because I didn't have the guilt that I'd shut out the kids. I was really getting to know the family and maintaining that priority. And I've mentioned that almost every time I speak at writers conferences that people should, should put their families first. And sometimes people will say, boy, you're really laying a guilt trip on us. And it's a lot of <laughs> right, and I say, right. Well, if you want to write without guilt, that's the way to do it. Oh, that's great. That's great so, advice. In our show, we like to use some inspiring quote that we can leave with our our listeners. And I'm sure you've been inspired over the years, things that you might have read that have kept you motivated and going. Do you have one for our listeners? Well, my late father was a, a man's man, and you know he was also a great churchman. He was a former Marine and a police chief, but I got really good counsel from him. He always said, make your goals intrinsic and not extrinsic. While everybody else is trying to reach a sales level or reach a salary level or some outward level of success, he said, you can only be the best you can be. It doesn't make any difference what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. And when I became a writer, he said, don't make your goal to be, become the best writer in the world or the best selling writer in the world or whatever. Make your goal to be the best writer you can be. You know what that is. And he said, if you're the best writer you can be, and that makes you 1,000th in the world, you can't be better than that. No, that's great. But if you become the best writer in the world, and you could be better, you're still a failure. Mm-hmm. And I've always taken great satisfaction in that, mm-hmm. that my goal is not, you know, because I don't, as I mentioned earlier, I don't control sales. I can't, I can't determine for the market what they're going to buy or not buy or like or not like. All I can determine is... Am I the best I can be at what I'm doing? Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, our listeners are probably thinking about how you might want to challenge them. And I'm wondering if maybe there's a new aspiring writer that might be listening to this podcast. What what might you tell them as a challenge? Well, you'd be surprised the number of people I hear from who, and you mentioned that your your mother-in-law wants to write a book and, and she's not a young woman. And I can tell from looking at you, she can't be very young. Um, <laughs> that, was my that, favorite sounds like, that sounds like a comment Armin would make. <laughs> Just made my day, Jerry. Thank you. <laughs> I hear from lots of people every day at the Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild who say, well, I'm 
in my 60s or 70s or 80s. And is it too late for me? It's never too late. I could tell all kinds of stories of people who started things when they were older. Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, people here read about the little girl on the prairie and the little house on the prairie. Yeah. About this little girl. She was in her 60s when she wrote that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grandma Moses, the, the artist who drew until she was in her 80s and 90s. So it's never too late. And neither is it ever too early. I hear from kids all the time who want to write books and stuff. And I say, well, don't start with a book, but you can sure start writing as long as you're old enough to put a sentence together. So don't let anything stand in your way. If you want to be a writer, the important thing is what you want to say and learn the craft, hone your skills and get behind the keyboard and do it. Yeah, that's great. Well, you help ordinary people and extraordinary people learn that craft through your Jerry Jenkins writer skill. Take a minute and, and talk about that. Yeah, basically, I'm just teaching people every day at my normal website, which is just jerryjenkins.com. I'm blogging and, and offering things to people about writing every day. And then at jerrysguild.com, we open that for registration every several weeks. Um, and there I have podcasts and writing classes and online live workshops we have even what we call office hours where people can call in at a certain time and I'll answer any questions they want. Wow. I interview experts from 45 to 60 minutes on Skype like we're doing here. Just all kinds of features for people. There's there's a modest charge for that, but it's worth checking out and, and we keep it really low. It's it's not about making money. It's just so we're able to pay our expenses. But I'm a member of that community and I was surprised at how modest that fee was, Jerry. And I know that you're not doing it to make money from it. You're doing it to, to make it sustainable in a way that allows you to do what you do. And I'm thankful for it. And I was really surprised at that. Well, I mean, unfortunately I'd love to just spend all day with Jerry, but he's got a dentist appointment to get to. (laughs) That's the last thing we want to keep you from. Keep me from it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have to say uh, so long. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to leave us a show comment and uh, positive ones, up, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or reach out to Jerry at his website, jerryjenkins.com. But leave us a show comment at reinventure.me slash 107 or call our show line at 612-314-5447. Jerry, want to say thank you again for joining us on the program. And that's all for this week from Larry and Armin Asadi and Jerry Jenkins. And we're saying so long. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Reinventure Me podcast with your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi.